Good afternoon. This is the local coronavirus update. I'm Alicia Bales, live in the studio with Dr. Drew Colfax. Hey, Drew. Hello, Alicia. Welcome back. Thank you. Here we still are. Same as it ever was. It's still the Same pandemic. Same as it ever was, yes. Yeah, it really is. So, um... What are we going to talk about today? What's I, going on with the know, coronavirus I, locally? I feel like things are definitely on a steeply improving trajectory. Um, we're still dealing with a mini surge here in the county, and I'll get into that in a minute. But in general, nationally, um, statewide, and to some extent locally, things are really starting to improve and have been improving for you know a couple months now, um, really since things were completely out of control back in January. It's been a steady improvement ever since then. Um, and that's really due to our vaccinating our way out of this thing. You know, as a as an ER doctor, um, I certainly am back to seeing uh, far more patients um, presenting with complications of methamphetamine intoxication or alcohol intoxication or the results of the American diet uh, than I am COVID. COVID is really just one of these diseases in the background again that huh. I'm aware of, but it's certainly not occupying my um, clinical time in a significant way any longer. I wish there was a vaccine for those other things. Yeah, well, you know. How common, like, how, what, how common are, are when you say um, drugs and alcohol and maybe unhealthy lifestyle, like, yeah. How much? How big of a health impact is that in what uh, that you in see the in county? the ER? Yeah. Well, keep in mind, my sampling is rather biased since I work weekend nights primarily. So ah. I, I you know don't have a fair representation in my clinical personal clinical practice. But I can certainly assert with a fairly high degree of certainty that probably one third of the patients I will see on the weekend nights are there due to alcohol or drug abuse um, in in some form or another. Wow. Yeah. That seems like a massive impact. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yes. So it's, you know, it, it is what it is. It's, it's unfortunately the sort of what we have for healthcare in this country is just mm -hmm. kind of a band-aid for some of these chronic ongoing addiction issues. Well, we also have our carceral system, so that's good. Yeah. That helps. <laughs> All right, we're our, a little, little, okay, little okay. bleak here. It's yeah. because yeah. because with the pandemic is ongoing, but it is we are having a mini surge. We are apparently, we are. but yeah, it's, it's not like there's any big news going on. We're all just sort of trying to figure out what yeah, to do. It, it, and the cases are really amongst people who are not vaccinated, um, which is you know still a substantial fraction of the population. Uh, we're adding that to get through the number portion of this program we're adding about eight cases a day um, now in the county that which is, is a up lot. from you yeah. know we we were down to two or three a day a month ago um and so we're we're back up again positivity was in the in the one point range and it's now 2.4 um so in the last week we've added 45 new cases to the case count uh 4153 as of Friday afternoon, we're always sort of stale on the county data at this point, um, but up to 140 in isolation and quarantine, and we were down into the 70s, uh, so it's twice as bad as it was a month ago. Um, four people hospitalized, two in the ICUs, um, but again, these are all people who haven't 
been vaccinated. Um, the vaccine is just astonishingly effective at preventing serious illness from COVID, um, which is great. And it, it, you know, the bottom line is the number of deaths from COVID has remained at 49, I think, for over a month now, um, which is great. You know, obviously, that's that's sort of the the endpoint that you want to measure. But still, people are getting you know eight people a day in the county getting COVID, with some fraction of those people having. You know, perhaps some significant um, long-term um, morbidity from COVID. That's that's not a trivial um, aspect of what we're still dealing with. Because what you're saying is this is totally preventable. A, well, not totally, all right, because the vaccine is not 100% effective, but it is largely um, preventable. It certainly can, certainly can be mitigated significantly. Uh, what we don't really have a handle on yet um, is whether if you're vaccinated and you still get COVID, whether you whether your chances of getting long COVID or sort of the long-term effects of COVID um, are reduced as well. And we just don't have that data yet. I, I think in the end, it's going to uh, be shown that the vaccine does significantly minimize the risk of having some of those long-term sequelae. Interesting. So, But we don't know because we haven't had enough time with the vaccine? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it. it really didn't start getting used until January. And honestly, long COVID sort of the syndrome, if you will, is so complex and variegated um, that it's it's hard to get a handle on in terms of any sort of robust data. Yeah, I've heard some uh, some horror stories about yeah. people who are laid up for months and months and oh, just yeah. can't get out of bed. No, or people requiring oxygen for months and months after a serious COVID illness. That's that's not uncommon, unfortunately. Wow. California is still the number one state per case count uh, per hundred thousand. Um, followed by Oklahoma. So you mean we're the number one state in terms of that on the good scale? We are on the good scale. The low yes, state, yes. the lowest state. The, Go the, the California. Fewest, the fewest cases per 100,000 people <laughs> per day. Uh, we're down to 1,200 cases in the state of California a day. You know, back in January, December, January, we're up to 35, 40,000 a day. So that's a remarkable that's downshift. Um, wow. And the two-week trend is down 37%. Uh, the U.S. is down to 25,000 cases a day, which is about where we were a year ago. Um, you know, down from, I think we peaked at around 300,000 um, back in December. So it's improving all over the place um and the vaccine is continuing to roll out um around 60 percent of adults um in the united states have been vaccinated at this point with at least one dose um high state variability um so mississippi compared to maine it's twice the uptake in maine compared to mississippi if you can imagine that um but still we're we're getting there is that I, I understand we're probably going to assume that's because people are vaccine hesitant in Mississippi due to the red state, blue state thing. But are there other kind of structural things going on? Sure. Yeah, I mean, Mississippi has a terrible health care um, delivery system, um, you know, as do many of the um, states in the Deep South. Uh, not that California is, is that great, um, but it's even worse um, in, in, in some of these states that have very low vaccine uh, uptake. Um, there's huge structural barriers to a significant proportion of the population, um, both in, in our county, um, in our state, but in more deeply so in, in some of these red states. So it's not just, you know, sort of the 
the ultra-right-wing Republican Fox News uh, watchers who are dragging Mississippi and Alabama's numbers down. It's it's a lot of structural problems. It's that those people are in control of also of the health care system. Well, yes. <laughs> so, and I've heard some talk in California about public health officers across the state advocating for uh, a return to pre-2008 funding levels for public health, like that it was gutted after the recession and those fun- the funding hasn't been put back, but they're saying that the pandemic is the perfect example of why we need robust public health. Yes. Have you been following any of that? I have. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's been an ongoing problem, really, even before 2008. The underfunding existed long before that. Um, and, you know, we're, we've generally not been putting a lot of money or thought into disease surveillance or, or any of these issues that public health um, needs to, you know, be ahead of. Um, and so it would be nice if we kept public health uh, well-funded. They've been certainly, um, there's been a surge of money going to public health in the last year and a half, which obviously has been money well-spent. Uh, hopefully that continues because it will continue to be money well-spent going forward. Right. If, if you're going to um, get a good return on anything, it's going to be that, right? Yeah, well, you know, we know that any investment in public health translates to you know, multiple times money savings in, in direct health care delivery down the road. Um, so it's, it's cost-effective. It's just not terribly politically popular. The, the public health director lobby is not a well-funded <laughs> one. Yeah. They're all these old docs yeah. <laughs> telling everybody to, I don't know, take their vitamins yeah, or whatever. Doctors, public health, you know, do. they can be annoying. So, oh well, yeah, we're, we're glad they're there though. Yeah. Yeah. All right, what else you got? Well, you know, other than all that, um, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, as the United States gets more and more vaccinated, this unfortunately is becoming um, is going to become a disease of the developing world, right? I mean, we're so far ahead of the rest of the country, of the rest of the world, um, even far ahead of most of Europe, for that matter, um, in terms of getting ourselves vaccinated out of this morass. Um, that it's going this. COVID is going to become, uh, you know, for years probably going forward, um, a disease much like, say, malaria or tuberculosis, um, which is to say it's a disease that exists somewhere else. And and ravages those places. Absolutely. And, and, you know, there's certainly the potential, um, if not the probability, that some strain of COVID will emerge that will then surge back into the United States. That's possible, but the surveillance is getting pretty good on it. Um, there's a lot of international money going into it, and there's a lot of vaccine development looking into efficacy against these various strains around the world. So, you know, whether that comes to uh, uh, fruition or not really remains an co- open question as to whether we can develop and modify some of these available vaccines to hit some of these strains. I mean, just today, um, a vaccine that's not available or approved in the U.S., uh, the Novavax, was shown to be very effective against the South, a- what we call the South African um, variant. Uh, they tweaked it so it was effective against, I think it's B1351, um, which is a more virulent and deadly variant. Um, but this vaccine was shown to work quite well against it, uh, you know, on the par of the Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson Johnson vaccine. So, and that's that. Those are the kind of studies that we're going to continue to. See over the course of the next year or two, even. 
So it's a little bit like Mississippi and the whole world. It's the, the infrastructure just isn't there to facilitate the vaccines? Or is it like our public health system in the whole world where the political will isn't there? Or what, well, what is it? There's no infrastructure. I mean, there, there's so little infrastructure in terms of public health or healthcare delivery in much of, you know, Europe and Asia. Uh, I'm sorry, Africa and Asia and South America that it's just you know, it's very hard to get these vaccines into those countries, and particularly if we're still talking about vaccines that have, you know, fairly rigorous ref- refrigeration uh, requirements. Um, that's just hard to do. I mean, we're talking, you know, it, who knows where COVID stands, you know, throughout huge swaths of Africa where there really just isn't that much public health or health infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how that's going to translate into cases worldwide or here, we just don't know yet. All right, but here back home, we still have uh, vaccine clinics or uh, vaccine events happening all week. And slowly but steadily, people are continuing to get their shots. People keep coming in for the first shot, which is great. I mean, I I think we're going to continue to see this sort of slow uptake. Um, You know, it's, it's hard to get an exact number on how many people are coming into the county for a vaccine, new, a first dose vaccine on a weekly basis, that number is a little bit elusive, uh, just because there's so many places to get it. Um, but nationally, and I think it probably translates, you know, to our local sort of experience. Nationally, we kind of hit a plateau. Um, you know, there's a steep decline of about a million. We went from about 3.2 million doses a day, and we've been kind of holding steady nationally at about 1.8 million doses uh, for the last couple weeks. And I think we'll probably continue to see that for, you know, certainly well into June. Um, we might trickle down into a low point, one point million range um, by midsummer. You know, having the 12 to 15 cohort um, now eligible um, is great. Uh, we're going to you know, see that translate to a fairly large number of cases um, pretty quickly in the county. Right, and that's um, that's kids. Yes. So that and that will. Um, do we have any sense of how what the percentages of of how many kids have been vaccinated so far? Or is that harder to track? That's that's even harder to track. Um, you know, I, I anecdotally I can say that there's you know the, the first wave of the 12 to 15 year old uh, vaccine events um, probably got somewhere around 30 to 40 percent of the eligible kids um, in the last week or two because they were in schools. Yeah, um, and I think we're probably going to see you know the another 30 to 40 percent over the next week or two, um, which gets us to the 60 80 percent range. And, you know, then we're going to have sort of the, the laggards um, coming in, um, you know, later on. Um, and The procrastinators. The procrastinators, <laughs> the busy, the, you know, sort of the otherwise occupied. The, or um, the just, I don't know why I'm avoiding it. I'm just avoiding it. I'll get it at some point. Just don't bug me about it. Well, the, the more available it is, the more people will get it. And, boy, it's hard to not get a vaccine at this point. There's so many options. This is true. And let me just talk about what's happening. It's not as many as last week, but it is still quite a lot um today at point arena high school they're doing an an event from 3 to 6 p.m this is a first dose vax clinic and it's for point arena high students and their families over the age of 12 and it's also open to the community for walk-in um tomorrow willits high school is doing a first dose pfizer event from 9 to 3 for everyone ages 12 and older 
Uh, a parent or legal guardian must print out and sign the consent form for minors, but you can get that. There's a link on the MendocinoCounty.org uh, page, their website. Also on Tuesday the 25th, there is a first dose Pfizer at the Willits Community Center, again for everyone 12 and older. That's from 4 to 6 p.m., these are all county events, by the way. Uh, and then on the 26th, which is Wednesday, at the Ukiah Fairgrounds, there's a First Dose Pfizer event from 5 to 7 p.m. Again, anyone 12 and older is eligible for that. And then on Thursday, the 27th, we have uh, in Mendocino Town, in the village of Mendocino, at Mendocino Presbyterian Church, there's a First Dose Pfizer clinic from 4 to 6 p.m. Again, that's for anyone 12 and older. And then we have a bunch of, well, a handful of Pfizer second dose clinics that the county is putting on this week. Um, One is tomorrow at the Willits Community Center from 4 to 6 p.m. for anyone who received their first dose at the Willits Community Center on May 4th. And for all of these second dose clinics, please bring your vaccination card. Um, Appointments were scheduled during the first dose appointment, apparently. Uh, The 26th, which is Wednesday, at the Ukiah Fairgrounds from 5 to 7 p.m. for anyone who received their first Pfizer dose at the Ukiah Fairgrounds on or before May 5th. And on Thursday, there's a second-dose Pfizer clinic at the Mendocino Presbyterian Church from 4 to 6 p.m. That's for anyone who received their first dose at the Mendocino Presbyterian Church on May 6th. And there aren't any currently scheduled Moderna second-dose vaccination clinics. So there's also, um, I've discovered on the MendocinoCounty.org website today, is that there's a link for pharmacies offering COVID-19 vaccines in Mendocino County. And I was going to print out the list, but it was 12 pages long. So So just click on that if you want to do it through the pharmacy. Just about every pharmacy, I think, in this county, uh, maybe with a couple exceptions, is offering the vaccine as well, which is an easy way to get get the shot. Um, And I I frankly think public health actually is now encouraging clinics to you know crack the vial even if it's one or two doses that are going to be used which is you know both good and astonishing um right. you know we're, we're sort of in this you know fortunate position to have excess vaccine um and so even if it leads to wastage uh, the recommendation is open the vial and get you know one or two or three people vaccinated which i also think is going to translate to the vaccine being distributed to um, local health care providers and doctor's offices, um, provided that they have the refrigeration capabilities. Um, and then they'll just crack the vial if they have one or two people come in here and there to uh, get a vaccine. But you know, we may be at a point um, where the majority of people who are going to get it um, have gotten it by probably mid-July. And then they're doing this other thing, which is these kind of traveling events, and they're they're doing them at like restaurants, or they're, they're, like you can call them and say, "Hey, I want to do one, you know, at my business or at you, you know." You get a taco truck and a vacuum. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Yeah. And then they're giving out like gift certificates and stuff. Yeah. I should have held out. <laughs> no, <laughs> but you no, have. I shouldn't have. <laughs> Absolutely not. I went as yeah. soon as I possibly yeah. could. Would you, would you rather get COVID for a free beer? No. I don't know. I did yeah. it on my birthday. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Okay. Should we open the phone lines? We might as well. I don't know what else we're going to talk about. Any more so. thoughts to share? No. I, I, you know, I think we sort of summarize where things stand at this point. Um, and hopefully things continue in this 
generally positive direction. Yes, it is nice to hear a positive coronavirus update from you. Yeah, it's um, weird. It's yeah. Off brand. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if things are looking up, that's good. That's good. Okay, 895-2448-707-895-2448. We'll take our first call. Hey, caller, you're live on the air. Hi. Um, I have a uh, an anecdote to relate, which is of great interest. A friend of mine with long-term COVID had her symptoms vanish after getting vaccinated. I don't know which vaccinations she got. Yeah, no, that's... That is interesting. Um, you know, that's not not necessarily the universal experience of people with long-term symptoms. Um, there's also, you know, some minority people who feel like it has made long COVID, the vaccine has made long COVID worse for a transient period of time. And there's not a lot of great data or sort of robust uh, clinical data on whether the vaccine sort of shortens the um, effects of long COVID. Um, but that... That's good to hear, certainly anecdotally. Um, it, it does make sense because this induces sort of a more robust immune response that could probably tamp down some of these, um, you know, these damages of long COVID that, that these unfortunate minority people are experiencing. So All thank right. you for that anecdote. I, I, it's good to hear that. All right, we'll take our next call. Hey, caller, you live on the air. Hi. Yeah, this question about international travel. My granddaughter's been living in Germany for the past six years. She's only 35, so she doesn't get a chance to get vaccinated over there. And she's coming for a visit. I think they make her have tests and prove that she's negative before she gets on. Mm -hmm. And then um, maybe again after, she'll be landing in LAX and staying there for a few days. And she's coming up to visit me. Yay! And yeah, I know it's wonderful, but I don't want her to bring COVID with her. <laughs> Very good point. Yes, um, presuming that you are vaccinated, your personal oh, yeah. risk is quite low indeed. Um, so I, I think that's manageable. Um, if she gets tested before she gets on the plane in um, Germany, and then perhaps tested again when she gets to LA, I think that would be a reasonable strategy to mitigate and assess your own personal risk. And then while she's here, she should she should get vaccinated, right? I mean, it's certainly available, um, and this would afford her a good opportunity to uh, getting vaccinated ahead of where Germany's going to be, because they are way way behind where we are in terms of um, vaccine uptake. So well, how would she go about finding a place to get vaccinated either in L.A. while she's down there or here? She could Cause... she could almost certainly just go to a pharmacy and get the vaccine. Um, and I've, not that I'm a big fan of sort of mega pharmacies, but one of the right. chains that has the unified database would probably be the, the most surefire way to get the, the get the booster shot. Okay. okay. And then are they doing the um, the one shot thing? Some are. I don't have a, the, the absolute um, information on that, uh, but the J&J is certainly available sort of here and there, um, but it's not really in this heavy demand ever since it was suspended uh, transiently. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it, it, it may be available as a one-shot thing. I don't know how long she's going to be here. The Pfizer is a three-week um, booster, so that would probably be her next best option. Um, and, yeah. 
you know, she's 35 um, and a female, obviously. So that does place her in the slightly higher risk group of the unfortunate few people, a handful of people have developed this uh, central venous thrombosis complication from the J&J. Um, we're talking a risk of one in several hundred thousand, but, you know, yeah. it, it, it's, yeah. it's just something to be aware of, certainly. But then what about if uh, she's been taking birth control, which gives you a predisposition to clots already? Yeah, the, the predisposition to clots from um, modern sort of uh, modern formulations of birth control pills is, is really vanishingly small, and there's not any good data to suggest that the people who've developed this central venous thrombosis um, were on birth control or whether that contributed in any way. So I, oh. I, I'm not sure I would uh, throw that into one's um, anxiety matrix. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's enough anxiety already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thanks very much. Thank you. All right. Okay, Thank bye. you. I shall remove that from my anxiety matrix. <laughs> <laughs> to, to make up a phrase. Yeah. I feel better already. Yeah. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Hello. Hello. You there? Well, if you turn your radio down, it might be less confusing. Hello. Hello. Go ahead and turn your radio down. Hello. Okay. We're having some trouble here. Yeah. We can hear you. Okay. We're right. going to go call on. Back. We're going to move on yep. to the next call. Hey, caller, you're live on the air. Hi. Um, I read a couple of articles, and a friend of mine read a couple others that said that parts of our county might be sliding back into orange or into purple. And I'm wondering what um, the doctor has to say. Yeah, I mean, there, there's certainly a risk. I mean, if, if we're running at a positivity of 2.4% uh, with 8.5 cases a day, that's, that, that, that is in the in the sort of range of going into orange, unfortunately. Um, I, I hope and expect that we're going to continue to vaccinate our way out of this little surge over the course of the next week or two, and that we're going to see numbers go back down before, um, you know, before it triggers an increase in our status. Um, also, the, the tears are vanishing um, What's the date? I think it's about June fifteenth. Yeah. So you know whether whether we bump into orange before all the colors disappear entirely, I'm not sure it really matters at this point. Um, so I don't think it's going to translate into any sort of change in uh, what's allowed or our behaviors, uh, which have become fortunately and I think reasonably fairly lax, um, particularly in outdoor events. You know, we're just doing a lot more. People are out a lot more, um, and it's certainly safe if you're vaccinated right so well most most of my friends are it's just you know like i just got to go to the movies this weekend right no exactly <laughs> Ooh, how, was it? how was but it but there are other things and places that i that i work and go that they have they've been very careful and it worries them that if we slide from yellow, even though I know the 15th is coming, um, into something else, that they're just, you know, they're going to stay closed or close again to be careful. So Right. And, you know, that's, that's possible. I, I think that the risk of people, you know, running businesses and having to work in sort of public-facing uh, enterprises is quite 
controlled, quite well mitigated, um, provided that those individuals are vaccinated. And I mean, that's really sort of, I, I sound like yeah. a broken record, but that's really the the tipping point or the, the main analytic um, point to drill down on is whether these people who are in these um, higher risk occupations, whether, you know, you're a store clerk or whether you're an ER nurse, um, if you're vaccinated or not. And, that, and that's going to protect you to a significant extent yeah. uh, from this. I, I kind of doubt frankly that the county is going to do anything in terms of changing our tier status since you know the state has lost interest in the tiers um and they're disappearing in the next couple weeks i also kind of doubt that the surge our mini surge if you will um that we're experiencing needs to translate into any change in behavior amongst people who are vaccinated okay thank you very very much you're welcome all right thanks for that question um, it is 895-2448. That's 707-895-2448 is the number here in the studio. This is the local coronavirus update with Dr. Drew Colfax, and I am Alicia Bells, working the controls. Whoops. Call back, caller. Hello, caller. You are live on the air. Yes, thank you. Let me just turn the radio off. Uh, I is not turning off. There we go. Thank you. Uh, so I have a question. Hello? Yes, you're you're live. I got you. Okay, great. Um, is there a conclusive way of finding out if if after you've been vaccinated you truly are protected and you aren't one of those you know potential breakthrough cases? In terms of having an antibody response. Yeah. Yeah. So you you can you can get an antibody test that tests sort of for the the spike or the active antibodies. Um, it's not one that we are running in this county. We don't have that assay capabilities in this county, but it is a it is a test that can be sent out. Um, I think it's run in Sonoma or maybe the Bay Area. Um, and if, if it shows an active antibody response, then I think you can presume that you have had a an appropriate uh, response to the vaccine. I don't think it's generally necessary for anybody other than people who are immune suppressed in some significant way. And, you know, that's really a discussion that each of these individuals needs to have with their provider. And I'm talking about people who are on, you know, immune modulating uh, medications for significant autoimmune diseases, uh, people who uh, have solid organ transplant and are are on immune suppression for that, um, or for people, even people who may be on dialysis, for example, they are generally fairly immune suppressed or chronic steroid therapy. All of those things, all those conditions uh, would warrant um, at least a discussion with a provider, and it may be an active antibody test to see if you are, in fact, protected from the vaccine. Unfortunately, uh, we know that a significant fraction or even a majority of people are not protected against the by the vaccine. Um, And so for this population, the pandemic is going to continue to be a real problem um, because they don't have protection induced by the vaccine. And if we're still running at a positivity of 2.4% with 25,000 cases nationally a day, you know, the, the risk of COVID finding these individuals is significant and the risk of their having the same bad outcome that they could have had a year ago, while mitigated a little bit with our, you know, our better treatment for people who are acutely sick, is still not all that much better than it was back in, you know, June or July of last year. Um, and so, 
it's it's a fraught subject, um, and it's it's getting a little bit of attention finally, particularly vis-a-vis CDC's abandonment of the masking uh, requirement, um, because that really does throw, you know, a significant minority of the population at increased risk. And you know, the estimates are anywhere between two and four percent of the American public has a medically um, defined uh, weakened immune system, um, and that's a lot of people who don't have. Have very good protection from the vaccine. I asked the question because um, the latest stats that I've seen about breakthrough cases um, mm-hmm. is about maybe about two, maybe three weeks old or so mm-hmm. um, of the tw- of the twenty eight million people vaccinated in Germany, and this was from the, the website Der Spiegel. Um, twenty two thousand breakthrough cases and six hundred or something uh, serious or, or even fatal outcomes. And that's a tiny number, you know, of all the people that were vaccinated. And so, of course, I'm not I'm not arguing against vaccination. I'm just saying, you know, it would make me feel a lot better if if I could verify that the vaccine actually protects me. And and also, do you see any connection between people who have long haul COVID and, and and the degree to which the vaccine protects them? Hmm. Um, So you're acting, those questions are a little bit nebulous um, in terms of getting hard data on them. Um, You know, the individual protection question, I I think, has to just be a question that, you know, each of us takes up with our medical providers. It's really not a very interesting question for the vast majority of us who have healthy working immune systems. But but for some of us, it's a critical question. Um, In terms of the data on long COVID. No, we really don't have that in terms uh, vis-a-vis protection from the vaccine. You know, really the, the main point I think that most providers take from this is that you don't get COVID at all um, with the vaccine, um, you know, to the to a significant extent. Um, and even if you do get it, whether that translates to a decrease in the proportion of people who get long COVID, we don't just know that yet. Okay, thank you. Yep. All right, thanks for the question. Now, something I wanted to ask about that. So people are getting breakthrough, quote-unquote, breakthrough cases, even if they've had a significant uh, immune response, right? It's mm-hmm. not that there's this ca- cause of you don't have a strong immune response, so that's where all the breakthrough cases are coming from. Correct, correct. So, you know, we from the clinical trials, you know, AstraZeneca in Germany, it was not quite as effective um when compared to the Moderna um, or the Pfizer vaccines um, that are that have largely been used in the U.S., and so the numbers in Germany are a bit higher in terms of the numbers of breakthrough cases um, because the AstraZeneca was just not quite as effective. Um, you know, the the Moderna and the uh, Pfizer vaccine are in the 94, 95 percent range at preventing COVID. AstraZeneca is not quite that high, so you're just going to see more more cases, um, whether they're severe or mild, um, when your population is largely vaccinated with the AstraZeneca. Nonetheless, though, we're still on this sort of downward exponential decay um, of COVID, um, both in, in Germany and in, in the U.S. Um, so it's, it's, it's an area that's getting a lot of intense scrutiny. It's just hard to get hard, it's difficult to get hard data on it um, 
just because we, you need clinical trials, right? You need it can't just be observational or anecdotal, um, and so getting that information is just a little bit squishy still. Right. Like so, the next question is then why do people get breakthrough cases? And I guess we we don't know. Yeah, well, it's you know it, it's just it's a lottery, right? I mean, if, if something's ninety five percent effective, you know, one in twenty people is going to get the get the illness, and it's not necessarily because that. 20th person has a weakened immune system, though it may be, um, it's just that that's how the statistics, you know, work out. Um, but it's still quite clear that there are very, very, very few cases of serious COVID um, in the U.S. Uh, amongst people who are vaccinated. Uh, that's just not happening very much at all. All right. Well, our phones are ringing off the hook. I see All that. three I, lines I are going off. So we will get 16 months of this. And I know. I can't get enough. It's good. <laughs> we love talking with you. So please keep calling in. Uh, we'll take our next call. Hey, caller, you're live on the air. Oh, great, Alicia. Thank you so much. First off, I just want to say thank you both to you and Drew for being there so faithfully all this time. It, you've been such a source of hope and information. So thank you for that. And the thing is, I am a part of a dance group here on the coast, and um, we were all excited. Everybody got vaccinated, and at the end of this month, we were going to try to meet together in person with protocols in place. And then I got the uh, uh, missive from uh, Dr. Corrin about triple increase of uh, cases and hospitalizations, and so... Um, I just wanted to run it by you guys what you think. Uh, there are about 15 people, everybody being vaccinated. We were going to dance inside with the windows open. Um, and I don't know if you know anything about English country dance, but it's not tango. You're not, you know, plastered against each other. Um, but you do hold hands, you come together, you go out. Um, so there is physical contact. Can we do that safely now, do you think, or is that still taboo? Yeah, I, I think at this point, uh, with the with the mini surge sort of compounding the the picture a little bit, and these variants compounding the picture a little bit, I think that that is reasonably safe. Um, particularly if there's good ventilation in the space and everybody is in fact um, vaccinated, the risk of you know, an acute illness that results in hospitalization or worse uh, from that type of event at this point in the pandemic uh, with very effective vaccines is vanishingly small. It's kind of equivalent to the risk associated with this type of event a year or two ago during flu season, right? Uh -huh. And so, you know, that, that did not, you know, we don't shut the country down every flu season for six months. Um, right. And we're, the analysis and the, and the numbers are, are quite similar. And I, I hesitate to draw a, an analogy to flu just because, you know, people are like, it's just the flu a year and a half ago. But, you know, we have 600,000 dead Americans versus, right. you know, 30,000 in your average flu season. But with the vaccine, we probably would have been looking at 30,000 deaths from COVID just because the vaccine is so effective, which would have put this kind of like a flu season, um, you know, with the obvious caveat being that we shut the whole country down for, you know, a right. year to control this. And we still had 600,000 deaths. So, yeah. you know, this, yeah. this was, and I, you know, I use that word 
intentionally this was a really, really bad illness, and we are finally getting ourselves out of it, um, slowly and ineptly, to be sure, but you know, we're getting there. And I think if your 15 people are comfortable with that very small risk, uh-huh. At at this point, doing something like that, it's it's both necessary and reasonably safe. It's certainly oh. safer than, say, driving you know Highway 20 from Willits to uh, Fort Bragg, right? Gotcha, gotcha. So we can dance without if everybody's vaccinated. Um, uh, we can dance without masks. I, I think that's fine if you're all vaccinated. I mean, I might buy a couple box fans and put them in the open windows just so you have a good air circulation in the in uh-huh. the in the room. I mean, uh-huh. I, I'm not sure what Andy would say to this, uh, frankly, but I, uh-huh. I, I think at this point in the pandemic, as long as there's not somebody who is at substantial risk, you know, I was just talking about the immune suppressed. Um, as right. long as there's nobody in that category um, of risk, then I, I, I think that's fine and. For those people who are in that category of risk, unfortunately, this pandemic is going to continue for months still, at least until yeah. our numbers drop to you know a well, fraction. There, there is one of our musicians, and we do have live uh, musicians. We have about uh, uh, four musicians who play for us, and and um, uh, there is a musician who is who is susceptible and who's been too afraid because she is. Um, uh, has problems with her immune system. She's been afraid to get the vaccine. So what? So she can't come and be a part of this. She, what are what are her risks? I mean, you'd have to know her particular case. I know that, but just generally, for a person like that, should she go get the uh, vaccination? Is she safe to do that? Uh, short answer um, is yes. Um, the longer answer is she definitely should talk to her health care provider. And if she right. truly does have a suppressed immune system in some way, and I'm not just talking about somebody who seems to get pneumonia every year. I'm talking about somebody who actually has a documented you know, defect or some medically induced suppressed immune system. Right. Um, then she might be the type of person who should get an antibody test to see if the vaccine actually worked um, afterward. Um, but that's you know that's a longer and more personal discussion than what I can handle on the yeah. air, obviously. Yeah. Well, yeah. that that gives me enough, and uh, hopefully she's listening, so she'll um, uh, pursue that. All so. right. Have fun okay. dancing. Thank you, Andy. And again, thank you guys so much. You're doing such a good job, and you have such a nice rapport. It's just it's a delight to hear you. So. <laughs> well, thank well, you. Thanks, and good. Yeah. Have a great time with your country dance. Yes, I'm so happy. Thank I'm you. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. All right, it's 895 We'll be taking calls until 4 o'clock. Hello, caller, you're live on the air. Please turn that radio off. Hello? Are you there? Just I'm just the hearing us. Loop. Yes, I'm hearing us. And even though we do this a lot, I still hate to hear... <laughs> my own voice all righty we have open lines good i actually had an emailed question again about um the performing arts um a bunch of musicians want to get together and um play um and the question was whether that's safe and whether they need to use plexiglass barriers or be masked um Again, and this is a bit repetitive, so I apologize, but again, if everybody's vaccinated, um, I I think we're at a point where that is a reasonably safe activity. Um, And as for the plexiglass shields, 
you know, there's really never been a, any good data to show that they work at all. And Alicia and I have been staring at each other through this plexiglass <laughs> shield that's been in the KZYX studio since last winter. So, you know, we, we have them. Uh, they're with us still. But I anticipate that they will suddenly disappear um, over the course of the next month or two. Oh, uh, we could remove this one. I don't really think this is doing a lot, frankly. Okay. Well. <laughs> We just got used to it. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's part of the decor. At this exactly. Point. Um, but it, you know, the musicians—it's—it's it's obviously hard to sing and play instruments if you're wearing a face mask. If somebody's you know more risk adverse or somehow at a higher risk of doing poorly with COVID, then just wear a mask, and that—that that would further mitigate the risk of this being a an event where people contract COVID and get sick from it. Or our favorite thing—the nights are getting longer and they are warm, and we are playing music outside these days, and yeah. it is really fun. Okay. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Yay! You made it. So, hey. here's my voice. I have um, chronic bronchitis, but I have a question. I work in an espresso shop, and we are worried about unmasked people coming into our shop. We have shields up, and we sanitize. We have hand sanitizer for everybody else. We all wear masks but we have two unvaccinated employees. So my question is, we are going to have the unvaccinated employees wear masks, but how are they going to be protected from people coming in who don't have masks on? Because once people are told, um, you wear masks if you've been vaccinated, some people are going to lie. Say they've been vaccinated. So how do I keep my employees safe? Yeah, that's that. That is the million-dollar question. That's also why I was befuddled by the CDC's recommendation that you don't need masks if you're vaccinated, because it does it does invite dishonesty, right? And as a medical provider, I can't tell you how many times I hear, "I'm going to be honest with you, doctor," which suggests that they were thinking about being dishonest with me. <laughs> so it's it's a it's a it's a real problem. Um, and in terms of keeping your employees safe, so first off, as a business owner or manager, you can still require masks uh, for entry. It's not like there's a, a constitutional right to enter a business without a mask on. Um, no shirt, no shoes, no mask, no entry, kind of thing. That's still completely up to you. So so uh, you are certainly in a position to not let people into your shop without a mask on. And I think that would be reasonable um, and an effective way to continue to encourage mask wearing and compliance and keeping your employees safe. Um, secondly, as to your employees who are not vaccinated, you know, that's it, they are at increased risk, obviously. And that's, you know, that's a personal decision that each of them is making that is beyond your control. I would continue to encourage conversation around this issue. Um, and I suspect that a fraction, if not the majority of, of these individuals will ultimately elect to get vaccinated. Um, just you know, as they continue to see um, how safe and effective it is. Um, so that's that's secondly. And then thirdly, just universal masking amongst uh, the employees, whether vaccinated or not, in this indoor space um, should continue, um, particularly while we're seeing this mini surge and until our numbers drop to truly negligible um, levels. I think that's entirely reasonable. At some point, I think that the vaccinated uh, cohort among uh, amongst us um, is going to want to abandon the indoor mask using, um, which I don't think would be unreasonable. I'm not sure we're there quite yet uh, locally, just with our case counts still hovering in the uh, eight cases a day range. 
Okay. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, that gave me gave me some good information, and I think we're just going to all wear masks. We're going to keep all our plexiglass shields up, and just try to keep everybody who comes to see us safe, and everybody who works for me safe. Yeah, I would just you know if you have a sign on the door, leave it up. You know, masks still required at this at this institution. Um, you might lose a customer a day, but you know, so be it. Um, that's yeah, that that's the cost of COVID. But at least we're open now, right? So. Um, I, I think that would be what I would recommend. Um, that's what I would certainly do if I were in your position. Okay. Thank you so much. It was lovely to talk to you, and I appreciate all the information that you guys impart. Keep up the good work. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for calling. And we got another call. Hey, caller. You're live in the air. Hello. 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 Yes, we can hear you. Great. I've got a question. I have a daughter, 24 years old, who was vaccinated back in March with her second shot, okay. 1st of March. Yep. And she just came down with COVID. Okay. Um, and she moved from one uh, series of jobs that, where she was in high exposure in restaurants and moved to one where she has almost no exposure. And she still came down with COVID. And she's just going through quarantine now, just finishing uh, 10 days of quarantine. And she's being told by her doctor that she does not need to be retested um, because she's not so other than some congestion, which may be from allergies or something else. And the fact that she's lost her taste and smell, but that's coming back. But I'm wondering what the general rule of thumb is when someone has come down with COVID and been vaccinated. Are they now going to be tested? It seems to me that's a bad idea not to test people even after they've been in quarantine for 10 days. Yeah, so... so she's, getting re- she's getting ready to go back to work. Right. No, that, it, there, there is a rational basis for not testing uh, in that scenario. And I'm sorry to hear that she got both vaccinated and then got COVID. She's, you know, in this unfortunate minority of people who still get it, um, despite doing the right thing and getting the getting the vaccine. I'm glad to hear that she is recovering, it sounds like, largely uneventfully. Um, but after the 10-day period of isolation, um, then you don't need to get retested because there's still a possibility that you're going to be um, positive on that test. Um, the, the, the test is quite sensitive, and it might still be triggered positive, but we know that you're no longer shedding the virus, which is to say you're no longer contagious um, and thus not presenting a risk to others. So the, the repeat testing to see if you still have COVID is going to quite potentially give you a false positive, um, which would then translate into the open question of whether you need to isolate or quarantine longer. And the answer to that is no. Um, you just you don't you don't. If you've been in isolation for ten days and you've recovered, um, and you have you know three or four days of um, an asymptomatic period uh, at the tail end of that recovery, then we know that you're not you're not going to make other people sick from COVID any longer. Um, whether you're testing is positive or not and i can i see this all the time at work i mean there's a certain population that comes to the er pretty regularly um, and needs to be hospitalized or uh, placed under psychiatric care and these individuals are tested each time they get hospitalized or um, placed under psychiatric care Uh, and you know even people who are positive back in december or january um, will still test positive months or two later Um, 
Um, and it's it's a false positive. They're not symptomatic. They're not contagious. But the test is still positive. And it, frankly, creates a lot of problems because now we have somebody who is showing as COVID positive uh, when, in fact, it's just a leftover COVID test. Um, so it's 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 a there's a rational basis for not recommending repeat dose uh, repeat testing. I see. Okay. So is the loss of smell is that not a symptom or is that loss is that of loss of smell is a symptom? You know, it, it's a sequelae of the illness. It takes a while for those nerves to regenerate. So it doesn't mean that she is still uh, symptomatic. Um, it's okay. really it's really the cough and the fevers and the fevers being the the primary criteria. Um, and so, provided that she hasn't had a fever for seventy two hours at the at the end of her 10-day period of isolation, then then she's she's good to go. She's she's through it. Okay. One other quick question. We're planning, this is unrelated to my daughter, we're planning to do a biodynamic conference, and we, wanted, we haven't been doing one in person for over a year. I don't know how long. They'd like to do one outside. Is that something that can be done now in a month, in mid-June? Um, with either with masks or without masks, or does everybody need to be vaccinated? Do you have any idea what the parameters would be for doing that? Yeah, of a I, gathering I, of about a hundred people. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not obviously public health, um, but I, I think a hundred person event that is outdoors um, at this point is certainly safe um, from a personal perspective of contracting COVID. I, I'm not sure what public health guidelines would will be a month from now in that type of event, whether they would want uh, masking. I kind of doubt it, frankly. Um, and I'm not sure what level of uptake there is um, in those 100 people for the vaccine. Um but that would obviously reduce the risk considerably. And if you're part of the organizers, I would, you know, I would certainly at least put out a missive strongly encouraging everybody to be vaccinated who is attending. And if you're not vaccinated, then the opt-in option would be to be masked at the event. Okay. Okay. Great. Yep. That, that helps a lot. I'll check with uh, public health before we do that. That really helps. Yeah, I, I think they'll sign off on this um, at this point, of, particularly since it's an outdoor event. Um, but I would just double check before I got 100 people together. Yeah, right. Great. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for all your work and time. Yep. All right. Thanks for the call. All right. We have an email. You want to check that one out? So, how are the kids of the county doing in regard to COVID 19? Are they currently unvaccinated? Are you seeing cases? Are they severe? So we're not seeing a lot of uh, pediatric cases. I, I did see um, a small number back in the fall and through January and February. Um, I, fortunately, we have not seen a single case, to my knowledge, of severe COVID in any pediatric patient um, in this county, um, which is fantastic. I mean, there are, unfortunately, a very small minority of kids who get very, very sick or even die from COVID. That just hasn't been our experience in the county. Um, as for vaccination status, you know, it's it's an ongoing it's an ongoing process. I, I think we're probably at around 30 to 40 percent, maybe even higher now of the 12 to 15 cohort. Um, and we're certainly higher in the 16 to 18 cohort. Kids under 12 aren't going to be eligible for the vaccine probably until September, um, maybe even October, um, perhaps earlier. It just depends how fast they get this tied off, um, which means that they're going to be still somewhat vulnerable. But you know, small kids actually do really well with COVID. And I, you know, I see kids with viral syndromes all the time at work. And it's, 
it's a clinical picture that I have to sort of assess with with um, these these children, and I'll have the sometimes a very lengthy discussion, sometimes a very short discussion, depending on sort of parental anxiety as to whether it may be COVID or not. And you know, frankly, I explain that kids do fine with the flu if they look great in general. They do fine with COVID if they look great in general. Um, and you know, usually I just send them on their way. I may or may not test them depending on parental preference. Um, but I haven't actually seen a pediatric COVID case for quite some time, and the county numbers reflect very low uh, levels of new um, under-18 COVID cases. All right, we have about three minutes left, and the phone line is blinking. Would you like to try it? Let's go for it. Okay. We may get cut off. (laughs) Hello, caller. Can you make it? Oops. Hello, caller. Can you make it quick? I hope so. Um, I really just have a comment and a request of... um, of Dr. Drew, and that is, uh, the previous caller made it clear again to me how confusing the terminology is that public health uses. The surveillance testing makes people suspicious. Why are you, you know, why are you spying on me? The um, quarantine and isolation, the distinction, I mean, it took me a long time in the beginning to figure it out, and you were very helpful, Dr. Drew, in helping me to figure that out. But this language just is extremely confusing, and um, I, I, I don't know what else to say other than how do we get public health to make things clear to people, you know, the, the average citizen. Right. And I'll no. take my answer on the air. Yeah, Thank we, you. You're, you're welcome. I, I appreciate the comments. I mean, it, it is, you know, we're all sort of epidemiologists at this point after a year and a half. I um, know what sequelae means Yeah, now. exactly. Yeah, and surveillance testing. So, you know, I, I didn't want to bother correcting uh, the previous caller when he used the term quarantine when it was um, technically isolation. Surveillance is a fraught word, particularly in, you know, mostly liberal Mendocino County. Um but that's what it is. That's what it's called in the medical community, in the public health community. And so there's no real reason to change that name just to, you know, appease um, the more paranoid amongst us. We do need surveillance testing. We do need surveillance um, of diseases. Um, I'm not sure we need surveillance in the form of traffic cameras on every corner in Ukiah, but there you go. Um, isolation, as the caller clearly knows, refers to people who actually have um, COVID, and quarantine refers to people who have been exposed to COVID. Um, and they do differ. Isolation is 10 days. Quarantine is still um, uh Two weeks, although it can be shortened with testing, um, but the terms are, you know, the terms are sinking gradually into our uh, subconscious, and you know we throw them around fairly loosely. And occasionally, I will catch myself or another provider using isolation or quarantine incorrectly. It just it just happens, um, but I let it slide. We know so, what you mean. Yep. Anyway, that I think brings us to the end of our show. Yep, that's going to do it for today's local coronavirus update. We'll be back Monday, next Monday, 3 o'clock from 3 to 4. You'll be here, right? I will. Oh, good. All right, well, don't work too hard in the meantime. Take it easy, and we will be back with you. Like I said, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for calling. Thank you, callers. Thanks for all the great questions. I am continually astonished at how many people still call in after 16 months of this, but it's great. All right, we'll talk to you next week. Take care. 
listening to the local coronavirus update from KZYXMZ Mendocino County Public Broadcasting in Philo, California. This podcast is made possible by funding from the Mask Awareness Project of North Coast Opportunities. To hear this program live, tune in on Mondays and Fridays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Williton Ukiah at 91.5 FM, and in Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Or you can hear us anywhere at kzyx.org, where you can also find out how to donate or become a KZYX member. Thanks for listening.